Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> Severity of illness and the rapidity in which people have gotten sick and this surge, which has happened so much faster. I mean, it's kind of like if you have 10 inches of rain in a year, you're in a drought place. If you have 10 inches of rain in a month, maybe it works well for the grass and the flowers. If you have 10 inches of rain in an hour, you're in trouble. And we're seeing mm-hmm. 10 inches of rain in an hour right now. And so wow. I think that that pace has really created a lot of fatigue. And so our health workers are heroes, but they're tired. And we are trying to do everything we can to help stabilize our hospital systems so that we don't end up like Idaho where they have, you know, gone to rationing of care. Hey, welcome, Faithful Politics listeners and viewers, if you're watching on our YouTube channel. Um, Unfortunately, Pastor Josh, our faithful host, can't be here this week. Um, He is checking on his cousin's friend from Trinidad. Um, But instead, uh, we have Dr. Clay Marsh, who is West Virginia University Chief Health Officer and was appointed as the COVID czar uh, for West Virginia by Governor Jim Justice. And uh, we're delighted to have you here. So thanks. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, and I'm Clay, by the way, so we'll just use our first name. So be my team. Okay. <laughs> okay, Clay. All right. Yeah, that, that, that'll work. So, so as the, as the anointed COVID czar for West Virginia, I'd imagine um, your days are, are fairly relaxed and boring. <laughs> well, let me just say the Delta variant has had other plans. <laughs> yeah. Darn that Delta. Oh, I should put that on a t-shirt. Um, so, 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 with with West Virginia, how how um, how goes sort of the fight on COVID uh, where where you're at? So we are experiencing the most substantial surge that we have experienced thus far in the entire pandemic, and our hospitals are are more full today of sick people with COVID nineteen. Our ICUs, our our number of ventilators we've had to use, number of cases have skyrocketed. So since the first week in July, when we were below 1,000 active cases, today we are over 27,000 active cases. And the number of people in our hospitals has uh, surpassed our previous largest surge, which was in December of 2020. And we have reached these numbers, much higher numbers than we've ever seen before, over 100 days sooner than we did with our last surge. So the explosive growth the transmission of the Delta variant of COVID-19 and the level and acuity of illness, severity of illness of even younger people, people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s is really quite different well than we've seen before. And when we look at our hospitalized population, we see that about 85% of folks in our hospitals in our state are not vaccinated. 90% of people in our ICUs, not vaccinated. 93% of people on ventilators, not vaccinated. And when you look at our deaths, which is over 3,700, 0.11% are fully vaccinated and everybody else is unvaccinated. So, So this is not, to me, a value judgment or a judgment on, you know, good, bad or whatever. It's just so heartbreaking for us to see so many people getting sick with this virus where you know 660,000 Americans have died and you know yesterday in the United States we had a 9/11 day we had almost as many people die from covid-19 yesterday as died in 9/11 and we don't even notice anymore so it's just very sad and tragic but at the same time you know we're hopeful that you know we're we'll be able to navigate through this and uh, and we'll see brighter days in the future. Yeah, you know, and and you know, hats off to to the governor there. Um, you know, I'm so so part of our podcast. I'm I'm the Democrat liberal person, and my my co-host Josh, Pastor Josh, he's the Republican side. And and uh, you know, even though I may disagree on certain policies with your governor, even though I don't live there, um, <laughs> like like I really I really tip the hat because of the effort that he's he's made. And I remember um, I was talking to my my wife recently. 
uh, well, I talked to her all the time, but in, in, in one particular conversation, I was talking to her about um, one of the giveaways they he was doing, like he was raffling or doing something with like a AR or a gun or something. And my, my wife is very anti-gun, but I'm former military, so I'm very pro-gun. <laughs> and I said, man, like maybe we should go get our boosters in West Virginia. <laughs> to be eligible. <laughs> to be yeah. eligible. <laughs> yeah. But well, I mean, but did any of that have any impact? Yeah, for sure. The, the governor is a businessman and he is very much into promotion. So he understood very early that there is a group of people that have been vaccine hesitant. So when we look at our population, we have really done well. We have vaccinated over 92% first doses of our over 65-year-old population and about 82% fully vaccinated. And when we look across our vaccine-eligible population, we're about 74% one dose and about 58% two doses. But we have a group of people who have been hesitant. And then we have a smaller group of people, probably around 15% or so, that just don't believe in vaccines and just won't get the vaccine. So he has worked to try to, you know, to create an incentive program for people who are hesitant, but still open to considering vaccination, particularly younger people. And we gave away college scholarships and gave away cars, gave away a million dollars a week for, you know, for about a month and a half. But the governor's been really clear, Will. He said that if you're, if you get vaccinated, you can be part and, and his, pet is baby dog. So this was the do it for baby dog lottery and <laughs> trying to make fun and baby dog's an English bulldog. And, you know, uh, so, you know, and you can be part of the prizes and the raffle and, and as he said, the goodness, or you can be part of the other lottery if you're not vaccinated, which is the death lottery. And either way, you're enrolled. And, and so the governor was really clear about the incentives being important, but also he was very transparent about the fact that we see basically almost everybody in West Virginia who's died from COVID-19 has been unvaccinated. So mm-hmm. that to me is just so powerfully clear. And, uh, you know, ultimately everybody makes their own decisions and he is not in favor of mandates. So he is trying to give people that information to make decisions But unfortunately, we've seen many of our West Virginia residents who have not been vaccinated, you know, get ill with this COVID variant, the Delta variant, because it is so much more transmissible, such a different virus than we've seen before. Yeah. Um, how um how are your guys as um healthcare workers doing? Every, every time I I have few, a couple friends who work in the ICU and you know they've got stories beyond stories and and I know the whole system is sort of stressed. But I mean, like, what's the sense that you're getting from them about just their tolerance or their patients? Um, you know, with dealing with with COVID patients. Yeah, I mean, it's really you know I I think that that most of our healthcare workers and and the doctors and the nurses and people that work in the hospitals, I mean, it's very fatiguing. You know, we, as I said, in early July, we really had seen such a decrement in the number of people in the hospitals and people really sick with COVID that this surge has been particularly challenging. And as opposed to the early parts of the pandemic, well, what we are seeing today is our limitation is not, you know, that we couldn't expand a number of beds into surge field hospitals or whatever. We don't have enough qualified staff to take care of them. So it is really that around trained nurses and, you know, and trained care workers, respiratory therapists and others to take care of folks. And I think that it's not against people that have COVID or against people that haven't been vaccinated, but it's more just the severity of illness and the rapidity in which people have gotten sick. And this surge, which has happened so much faster, I mean, it's kind of like if you have 10 inches of rain in a year, you're in a drought place. If you have 10 inches of rain in a month, maybe it works well for the grass and the flowers. If you have 10 inches of rain an hour, you're in trouble. And we're seeing mm-hmm. 10 inches of rain in an hour right now. And so wow. I think that that pace has really created a lot of fatigue. And so our health workers are heroes, but they're tired. And we are trying to do everything we can to help stabilize our hospital systems so that we don't end up like Idaho, 
where they have, you know, gone to rationing of care. Wow. How do you, how do you, how do you balance, you know, people's personal liberties, you know, ability to make choices for themselves and, and at the same time, encourage them to do something that, you know, that they really don't want to do. Um, I mean, I figure that it seems that I, I'm, I'm assuming if you can, if you could solve that and you would be president, you know, <laughs> well, I, I would say with no disrespect to president Biden, that may not be the prize I would choose, but, uh, <laughs> nonetheless, um, you know, I think that that's such an important question, and it's a very complex and a very nuanced question. And, and I think that there's really two ways that I've looked at it personally, and I sort of go back and forth, and it's sort of the lens that you put on that you see the world through that makes things look really different. So on one hand, I am very much a believer in people's personal rights and autonomy to make the right decisions for themselves and their family. I think, though, that during this pandemic, it's been challenging because just like secondhand smoke or just like if you drive drunk, it's not just your health you're taking, you know, into your own hands. It's other people's health because we know that people that are not vaccinated can spread this virus much differently than people that are fully vaccinated. And, you know, and also the numbers of people that are going to our hospitals are largely people not vaccinated versus people fully vaccinated. I'm not making a value judgment or, or, you know, criticizing the person, but it, it, it is really part of what is our role to not only ourselves, but to others that really becomes part of it. And, and based on, you know, your podcast and also being touching the faith-based community, I feel like that we have a, responsibility to others, to our communities, to our friends, our families, to our state, to our country. And we want to be citizens that are connected. You know, the root word of health is hail, which is also the root word of heal. It's a root word of holy. It's a root word of holistic. And it means whole, complete, together, connected. And, and one of the things that we have really tried to do is keep our state together pull the rope in the same direction as a line the governor's used before. And, and I feel like that this is a moment where uh, the other lens that I look through is I really think a lot about the serenity prayer, you know, to grant me the wisdom to change what I can, to accept what I can't, but to have faith that whatever's happening is perhaps happening for a bigger reason than I can understand. And so part of me is, you know, we talk about defeating COVID, the war on COVID, but I don't feel that way at all. Our goal is to start to get more in resonance and harmony and alignment with COVID and not see COVID as a bad guy, but see COVID as part of transformational change that is happening in our world. And I do believe that there are greater sort of issues involved right now that we can't see yet. But anytime you see a dark cloud, there's always the lining. There's always the sun behind the clouds. And I feel that way here, too. So, you know, part of it is we can't control what we can't control and we can't overthink that. On the other hand, though, I think the more that we can love each other and care for each other and not judge each other, but try to help each other, the more likely we make it through this very successfully. And I see that as really our role in West Virginia to do that. Yeah, that that's such a good that's a good word as as Pastor Josh would say if he was here he would say that a preach. Um, but you know, and 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 you 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 bring up religion, and I, you know, I read an article today on Washington Post about this pastor who's selling um, religious exemptions um, if you donate to his church, <laughs> and uh, I I was just sort of struck back by that, and just thinking, you know, I mean, so I'm a Christian. Um, one of my biggest beefs about Christians is just we don't really represent the gospel very well, um, <laughs> and uh, and this is just another example of that. And you know, I, I'm always just wondering, like, what what role you know can the church play or should play, you know, during this pandemic? Because I mean, a lot of you know, again, kind of, kind of, and, and I appreciate you 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 pointing out not making it a judgment call, but you know, when you start seeing patterns of of people you know, of choosing not to be in, 
be vaccinated, you know, you, you do see that a lot kind of in the religious community. Um, and I'm curious to kind of get, get your thoughts about that, um, about what role the, the church plays. Yeah, that's a really important question. And, and I would say, well, for me personally, I'm not so religious, but I feel like I'm very spiritual. And I've come to that more and more in understanding that what I understand about what's really going on and why that, what I don't understand is like one in the column I understand and infinity in the column I don't understand. So, so I'm getting less smart every day, but maybe I'm just getting a little bit more honest every day. Well, at one point it was said that the difference between clergy and physicians than any other occupation is that we put others' interests before ourselves. Now, I would say today in medicine and in religion, that is not always true. And in fact, like what you said, you know, there's the business of religion and there's the business of medicine that is different than the purpose of religion or the purpose mm. of medicine. And I, think that, and I think that this time is about us getting back to understand that the only way we really change the world, you know, the Sufi poet Rumi, who I really like, he, he said, yesterday I was clever and wanted to change the world. Today I am wise and decided to change myself. This is really about us changing us. And, and I think that, you know, we have been led to believe, and this is my own personal belief, that the world outside of us defines what happens in our responses, that we are single biological machines that function in a dangerous world and the fight or flight response and the survival instincts and the ego and the duality is important and present to protect us. But I think that's a staid and old pattern, old story, old narrative, old mindset. I think that we, in the ways that, that you know, inside of us, I think we're really powerful beings. I, I personally believe we're spiritual beings having a human experience and maybe human beings having a spiritual experience as well, but that ultimately we create the world that we experience on the outside from how we are feeling about ourselves on the inside. And that if we reach a, a you know, an obstacle, a jail cell, if we are with somebody we don't like or something we don't feel good about, and instead of that being something that, well, you did to me, Clay, I see that now as just a lesson for me to find a part of me that is not healed, that needs to be healed, needs to be loved, needs to be leaned into, not leaned away from. And I think that this is really, in many ways, about us taking back control and, 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 and realizing that heaven is not something that is out there that we flow to the sky after we die. Heaven is about us bringing as alchemists, you know, the love and connection and oneness and, and, uh, and wholeness to the earth where we're also experiencing ourselves as individuals. Because I think we are like rain, we're like drops of the ocean. Together we're the ocean, individual drops. Sartoro, the Japanese poet, said, individually we are raindrops and together an ocean. I think that's really probably more literally true for us. So I see religion as a pathway to spirituality, but ultimately real spirituality is inside of all of us, is, is our own decisions, is our own belief system, our own faith, because ultimately the highest human position is to let go of the control, let go of the dualism, let go of the judgment, the envy, the hate, you know, and thinking that one's better than the other. So, you know, if you think about yin yang, we say, oh, it's better to be rich than to be poor. But rich and poor is two ends of the same spectrum or fat mm -hmm. and thin or, you know, so I think as we go forward, we start to see that there's not better or worse. It's just different. And if we can embrace that and come together, then I think we can realize heaven right here on earth. Wow. That, um, that's really powerful. And, uh, I'm, I'm almost, I'm almost embarrassed to ask you the next question that I, I had planned because it was about ivermectin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, I have a comment on ivermectin. 
<laughs> so yeah, the question. yeah so so i mean it it's it's not as you know it's not as philosophical as as what you just uh said but but um about iver- ivermectin so obviously you've heard a lot about it and people are taking it and there seems to be kind of two two sides you know the people that say well hey joe rogan took it so it must be good for me and then the other side pri- primarily people in your field that are like no don't take ivermectin so i'm i'm trying i'm curious like like what's what's the deal with ivermectin so ivermectin is it's you know ivermectin's got a great story behind it and i'll just briefly detail the story so so ivermectin was created by mark and, and back when Merck created it, they figured out that it was a treatment for African river blindness and it actually could help a lot of people. And so Merck turned to the country or the continent of Africa and to some of the countries and said, we have a drug that will cure African river blindness and we'll give it to you guys at a discounted rate. And they were told we can't really afford it. And so Merck went back and decided, well, they really suck it up as an organization. They give it to them a cost. And they went back and said, we'll give it to you a cost. We can't afford it. And they had to decide whether they just throw it away or they give it to them free. And they decided to give it to them free. And that was the greatest days of Merck. That was the days Merck's stock went up. Everybody, Merck was the great company at that point because they donated something that could really improve human existence and didn't expect to get paid a dime back for the money they put in, which I thought was really good. But ivermectin then sort of transitioned into a deworming agent for dogs and cattle and other animals. And I think it's really quite ironic in a way. And this will be an aside that I probably should just keep to myself. But the people that are really worried about the safety of vaccines that have been used in hundreds of millions of people and have been clearly shown to defeat disease will be willing to take ivermectin, which is an animal medication of which people have been documented to go to the hospital because of toxicity, because people have taken drugs that were not really meant for people to try to fight COVID. So I don't quite understand that rationale, but nonetheless, you know, the FDA, CDC have not approved ivermectin for treatment. I know that there is some laboratory evidence that maybe in a laboratory test tube, ivermectin might have some impact on COVID-19, but in people, there's no real world data of any repute or any size that would say that ivermectin works. And we know that ivermectin can be dangerous, can be toxic. So I am 100% not in favor of people taking it. <laughs> and I am 100% in favor of people getting vaccinated. So I'm biased on that. <laughs> there you go. You heard it here first, folks. Um, so so is, is, is the ivermectin for animals like manufactured differently than the ones for humans? Now, it's really interesting. When you look at comparison, well, I, I, I'll say for this specific question, I'm not sure who makes ivermectin anymore, but I would say that in general, human medicine and animal medicine tend to be the same medicine. It's just up priced about 10 times for humans. So, so, so (laughs) supply demand as it is. Many of the drugs we give animals, people take too, but when it comes to people, they're always higher priced than animals in general. Mm, That's interesting. Well, I guess, I mean, Animals are really poor paying customers, I'd assume. So that's although you know, crazy. being the being the owners of two small dogs, I would say that, that our dogs have been have been treated uh, as we would treat our children. As far as <laughs> yes, I know. I same way. I've got two Australian shepherds that wish they were our real kids, and we kicked our real kids out of the house. <laughs> but, um, so, sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the um. Um, antibodies. Um, so, you know, one of the, one of the things I also hear is, is antibodies. Like, okay, I don't need to take the vaccine because I had COVID. I have antibodies. Why should I even have to take it? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith in public life, social justice, 
and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Yeah, that's a really complicated issue. So so there's a lot of conflicting information. There's a small study retrospective from Israel that basically said your risk of getting uh, reinfected with COVID was much greater if you've been vaccinated than if you had native infection. And that was a group of about 32,000 people that were looked at in hindsight in in Israel. And about 239 people of 16,000 that had been vaccinated got infected with COVID-19. And only about 18 of people that had pre-existing infection got reinfected with COVID-19. Now, in another part of Israel, they did a similar study and found that it was the opposite that about twice as many people unvaccinated got reinfected with COVID than vaccinated. So I think this really well starts to demonstrate something that's been really challenging during this pandemic. And I've been part of our state's response from the very beginning. So we're on day like, I don't know, 600 of our state's <laughs> response, our crisis response, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but there's so much information that is getting unfolded real time that there's a lot of contradictory data. And, and what I would say is the following. So certainly we know that people that respond that are, you know, able to be infected and recover with a infection do oftentimes have immune capability, immune response and immune protection. And, and, and that is likely going to help us. The American Red Cross said that based on their blood assessment, that 80% or more of Americans over 16 years old have evidence of response to COVID-19, either through immunization or through natural immunity. And since we know a lot of people have been exposed to COVID-19 from that data, and we also know that the American Red Cross found that probably about twice as many people have actually been infected as was, as has been reported. And as I told you, in our hospitals, 80 or so of our hospitalized people are not vaccinated. 90% of our ICU population, 93% of our ventilator population. So all I would say is I hope that people that have recovered from COVID have a lot of immune response. But all we can say is people that are not vaccinated have a much higher risk. CDC said if you're unvaccinated, your risk of getting infections five times higher, your risk of hospitalizations 10 times higher, your risk of dying 10 times higher. As I told you, in our deaths in West Virginia, 105 out of 3,700 people who have died were fully vaccinated. The rest were not. So all I can say in real world data from what we see, I would recommend, even if you've been infected with COVID-19, that you get vaccinated because the immune function is the greatest in people that have recovered from native infection and have been vaccinated. But I worry about the potential loss of potency or unpredictability of just your native immune system function because we see mainly people in the hospital, mainly people in the ICU, mainly people that die are the people that have not been fully vaccinated. Got it. So, so I mean, do, do the an, do the antibodies in your in your system are they unique um, at at preventing COVID for whatever variant is is commonplace? I mean, like if I so if I had I don't know the Delta variant antibodies, you know, will that protect me from the Mu or the Lambda um, variant? Yeah. So the the thought is that. Once you have recognized a form of COVID-19, and that remember the vaccines came out, and that was the initial strain from Wuhan, China, that was called the Washington strain. And then we got into the, the um, Alpha strain or the United Kingdom strain. And then we have now the Delta strain or the Indian strain, and, and where it initially was found in, in the country of India. And, and what's happened is that your immune system, when it becomes activated, then it should be able to modify its responses to be able to navigate 
you know, presuming that the that there's not such an amount of genetic change that it masks like a like a stealth fighter masks the ability of the immune system to find it. And and, and with the Delta variant, you know, it's interesting if you look at the at the variant from South Africa, and I'm getting mixed up now on which one is the gamma, which one's up. But anyway, the variant from South Africa, it had a lot of mutations in the spike proteins and it evaded the immune system more. So people were really worried about that. And when we look at the mu variant, it has more mutations in some of the spike proteins. The Delta variant, weirdly, has many fewer mutations in the spike proteins. And the spike proteins are the part of the virus that bind to cells and that's where all the vaccines are, are generated against the spike proteins. The Delta variant, if you looked at it to begin with, you would have never guessed it would be the guy that's defeated head-to-head every other variant wherever it goes. And the reason why it's done that, it, it multiplies very quickly. So it exists in about a thousand times more concentration in your nose and in droplets. And if it infects you, it starts multiplying really quick, which is probably why people get so sick with it quickly and why we're infecting. Because once you get enough people infected, then you start cross infecting. And this guy is, this variant is so effective at spreading because it exists in really high concentrations. And it's even been documented to infect somebody from contaminated air, like breathing in cigarette smoke. You don't even have to be with the person. You could potentially walk through a place with air that has enough of the variant there that you could actually get infected. So it's such a different variant. But the bottom line is, well, to date, all of the variants that we found do have protection, particularly severe disease from from the vaccines. And we presume also have some benefit from native infection recovery. But what we've seen from the Pfizer vaccine particularly and the, and the adenoviral vaccines, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, that after about six months, the potency starts to reduce, which is really the reason why Israel started to do boosters, why the United Kingdom now is starting to do boosters, and why we believe that in the United States, we need to get boosters as well, particularly for our older part of our population that's been vaccinated about six months or more ago, who are who have been immunized, you know, with Pfizer. Moderna tends to be a little bit better. But remember, Moderna exists in about three times as high a concentration in the vaccination, in the dose. So Pfizer is about 30 micrograms, Moderna is 100 micrograms. So it seems to have more potency. But, you know, but as we go, all of the immune function from vaccines that we know of respond to all the variants. And we presume that if your immune function is still potent enough from native infection, it should also respond to all of the variants. Inter- and and the, the, the reading I've been doing about the Mu variant, um, I read something that it you know, it's not even a variant of interest in the United States at this point. But, but um, I, I guess it does it have some characteristics that worries you know folks about whether or not the vaccine um, will will be effective against it. Yeah. So the mu variant started in Colombia, the country of Colombia, and it's been reported in a number of places in the U.S. And the concern about the mu variant, it does have a lot of mutations in the spike protein. And since the spike protein is the latching on part of the virus, and that's where the vaccines are, are directed. And if you think about the vaccines, really the goal of the vaccines is really twofold. One is it is going to be a covering, a neutralizing um, um, what's, I'm trying to explain it right. It, it, it serves a neutralizing capability because it is going to bind to those parts of the virus that allows the virus to get into our cells. So you want to use the vaccine, you know, early before you get infected and let it get on board. But even if we use the monoclonal antibody treatment, you also want to get those on board quickly because what you're trying to do is you're trying to bind to that part of the virus that gets into our bodies. So you block the virus from the the initial entry into the body where it then can infect you and multiply and also. The other thing is the vaccines start to activate another part of our immune system to actually kill the virus 
if the if the coded virus is getting into our system so it can identify that virus to be cleared and killed by other parts of our immune system. And so as we look at the mu variant, the mu variant has changes which might mask that part of the virus from the antibodies so that the antibodies can't bind to it as well, recognize as well, neutralize as well, mark it for death and destruction as well. But the challenge is the mu variant has not defeated the Delta variant anywhere it's been. So when you look for the variant, and it's a variant of interest, not a variant of concern right now in the U.S., but when you look at what the virus you really need to worry about, look for the virus that's dominant. And right now in the U.S., the Delta variant is dominant everywhere. 95% well of the counties in the United States, at least this was last week, may not be true today, were in high spread areas by CDC criteria. It is everywhere. And, you know, and it's dominated. It took the alpha variant, the UK variant, that was a real bad actor. We were like, wow, that's a really much worse mm-hmm. variant. Oh, it just put that to bed like in a, in a month. You know, it went to the UK and it just ran through. Now the UK is almost 100% the Delta variant. So when we look, we look at the mu variant and some others, they are variants we have to look for. But I think most people believe now that the next variant will likely be on the back of the Delta variant and where you'll see more changes to give the Delta variant some escape capacity. Because right now the Delta variant spreads real quick, really high concentration, but the escape factor, you know, in the mutations around the spike proteins, not nearly what we see, say, with the mu variant and some others. Yeah, you know, what's what's interesting um, is... Well, in my day job, I actually, I work as an environmental health and safety professional. Um, so a lot of my days are just wrapping my head around what the latest CDC, FDA, what have you, what's the latest conspiracy, you know, just trying to like put together a plan for my company. And um, one of the things that I think is, it's a little frustrating for me, and I'm sure for others that that do the similar type of uh, work is the prevention strategies haven't really changed at all with all the variants. So there's always, you know, like, okay, you got a 14 day quarantine, you got like a 10 day with no testing or seven day, you get tested three to five days, whatever, you know, and then, and then there's like this six foot distance. And, and it seems like, you know, and especially for contact tracing. So like I took this John Hopkins, like contact tracing class early on and, you know, they're like, well, you got to start two days before symptom onset, you know, and, and, and none of that has really changed. Um, do, do you think that those sort of prevention strategies are still, um, you know, accurate or, you know, or should, or should we be looking at, you know, some different parameters with the Delta variant? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, the CDC has obviously changed some of their guidance as we've gone. And um, so let me answer it this way. So I think that we have an incredibly powerful tool belt, tool set to defeat or to live in harmony better with the Delta variant. The absolute cornerstone of that intervention are vaccines. The vaccines, particularly the messenger RNA vaccines, they are game changers. And and that's like a little, to me, a little gift from God that we got before we started this. Because if you think about a vaccine like the influenza vaccine, it's maybe 50% effective. And it's really not even that effective in keeping you from getting infected with the flu, but it can reduce your risk of real severe problems, et cetera. These vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, are like 95% effective in keeping you from getting infected, at least for the first two to six months. And it's incredibly, you know, and in that same time period, probably 98% effective against you getting sick enough to go to the hospital and maybe even greater effective in keeping you from dying. So unbelievable and real safe. I mean, we've had a few hiccups around the Johnson and Johnson with the blood clotting and the, you know, and and maybe the mRNA vaccines with the little heart inflammation and some young people, but that didn't turn out. Neither of those turned out to be, you know, showstoppers. And, you know, we monitor people getting the vaccines in certain categories, but, but as, but as we look at 
the sort of the steps that we have available to us, I think that the masks still are helpful, particularly on top of the vaccines. And we know from CDC data that the masks are 40 to 60% effective at reducing source transmission. In other words, aerosols, droplets that are generated from people who laugh, sing, talk, cough, sneeze, yell, whatever, and about 20, 30% effective in blocking you from getting you know, infected as a barrier function. But we know that anything that reduces the inoculum dose, particularly in people that have been vaccinated, is generally a protective factor that keeps you from getting infected. The six feet, I think, is probably not relevant so much anymore. It hasn't been officially changed. Asia used three feet, but we know that people that can just walk through contaminated air can get infected with the Delta variant. So the whole 15 minutes and, you know, I think that's probably less effective. And when you get such high transmission, well, contact tracing is a good idea, but doesn't really help because it's like the all the animals are out of the barn and out of the fence, and then you latch the fence and you check the you know the barn door. So, so I think that we now are in a situation where it's it's important to try, but likely some of the mitigation measures like contact tracing and like um, distancing. You know, while still good to do, and I'm 100% in favor of it, and you'll catch some people, but in general, that's harder. Really effective testing is important, but we don't do that so well. And home testing is something that we are trying to advocate in West Virginia. But the truth is, you know, because of the Provincetown experience that the CDC had, where, you know, a bunch of people that were really careful, many fully vaccinated, went July 4th thing in Cape Cod, Provincetown, and, you know, who'd have thunk it, but out of about a 1,000 people that ended up getting COVID over that weekend, about three-quarters of those people were fully vaccinated. And when they checked the nose, they found just as much virus in the fully vaccinated people as the unvaccinated, and that freaked everybody out, CDC included. And that's when we went from, you don't need to wear a mask if you're fully vaccinated, to everybody needs to wear a mask because of that. Now, in work from Singapore, what we found is that although initially maybe you, you have a lot of virus in the nose, even if you're vaccinated, it goes down very quickly, much quicker in vaccinated people than unvaccinated people. So it turns out that fully vaccinated people are much less likely to spread COVID-19, even with the Delta variant. Again, suggesting how important it is to be vaccinated. But I think as we go forward, the truth is we have a relatively limited tool belt in the prevention, vaccine most important, mask next important, testing probably third important to identify people. And then it's kind of the honor code, you know, stay away from people if you're sick because some people don't really do that. And then I think as we go forward, the monoclonal antibody treatment is so important because if you do test positive and you're in these vulnerable categories, older, other existing medical problems, or if you become a contact of somebody who's infected, get the monoclonal antibody treatment. That can It has an 80% reduction, and you getting sick enough to go to the hospital, really important. And then if you get in the hospital, we're in more problems. Remdesivir, the antiviral agent, that eh, works okay, not great. Steroids work better. But this variant is so powerfully able to get people to get really sick really quick that is really concerning. So we want to do everything we can to keep people from getting that sick because once people get that sick, it is really a problem. And that's what we're seeing our hospitals, our ICUs filling up with are people that are getting really, really sick with the Delta variant because they didn't take those steps or we weren't able to help them take those steps or whatever before to keep from getting there. You know, an ounce of prevention is worth here a ton of cure, not a pound of cure, but a ton of cure. <laughs> And if we get to the, you know, the lack of prevention, we got big problems. And that's what we're seeing in the United States. Wow. That's awesome. So, so what do you, uh, obviously, I'm sure in your field, you've probably have heard all the different reasons about why somebody shouldn't get vaccinated um, or what they think about um, COVID. Um, people kind of have a litany of ways to sort of conduct research. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you, how do you suggest people conduct their own research? 
you know, Will, I, I'm a big proponent of real world data. And, and I think that that's what's been so powerful in part about this pandemic. You know, the country of Israel partnering with Pfizer has really, to me, been the primary canary in the mine, if you will, for how vaccinations work and how we need to follow things. Certainly, you know, as we look at around the world at countries like India, you know, India is where the Delta variant started. And in the country of India, as I understand it, initially before the Delta variant, about 25%, 20 to 25% of people had tested positive for the evidence of being previously infected with COVID-19. And 10 to 12 weeks later, 400,000 people officially died of the Delta variant there. But researchers that are credible think it was more like 3.5 to 5 million people that died in India there. And it's a population of over a billion people. And when they did the testing for the antibodies afterwards, they got over 70% of their population uh, that were positive. So this tore through India like a raging fire, you know, goes through dry timber. And you remember that in India, to get a, a family member in a hospital, it was almost an impossibility. But once you got a spot, you had to find them oxygen. You know, families had to go out and try to find oxygen for their families because it was in such a short supply. And so we looked at that and we knew to ourselves then that this was a really different disease, really different, and it was much more severe and it spread so much more rapidly. So, you know, as we started to look at countries that were starting to experiment in Israel with the boosters and, you know, and, and mitigation measures and the United Kingdom that had been much more vaccinated that released the mitigation measures. And then you saw even with good vaccination rates, when you release the mitigation measures, the cases started to go up, hospitalizations started to go up, deaths started to go up. And when you use the boosters and you added mitigation measures, things started to go down. So I think you can do a lot of studies and the FDA requires certain research studies to do, you know, full approval and for Pfizer and they're doing that now Moderna, et cetera. But I like the real world data where you're seeing what's unfolding in countries that are reporting things and they're being very open because that to me is the best opportunity for us to create the network so that we're learning from those that are going before us. And in West Virginia, we have really taken a strategy of trying to democratize all the things that we're learning. We have created our own internal to the state supply chain. We make our own personal protective equipment. We've made our own PCR tests. We've made our own tubes and swabs and antibody tests and next generation sequencing tests and so on and so forth. And we've done it because we want to be self-sufficient so that we can take care of our own people. But we are always delighted to share with anybody we can help. And we, of course, want to learn from anybody we can. Because eventually, as we talked about together, not against each other, this world is going to function so much better. Our country functions so much better. Our state functions so much better. When we see each other as friend, not foe, when we see each other as part of a single kind of continuous frame like the mushrooms in the forest. You know, they look separate, but they're all connected underground. And I think that that's part of what we're trying to get at, because in ecosystems that are successful, they are successful by collaboration, never by competition. And our whole world's been built on this competition model. But I think that's the part of our world that's starting to fracture and fall down. And I hope that we'll come together and see that as we support each other, you know, there's a book by a guy named Rutger Bregman, and it's called Humankind, and he's an anthropologist. And he wrote about why humans have evolved in the way they have. And he argues it's because we're, we can be kind to each other. And I think more kindness, less competition, more togetherness, less, you know, seeing each other as enemies, that's the way that we not only make it out successfully from COVID-19, that's the way we discover a better world together. That's really awesome. Um, um, I want to I want to just do a quick role play here for a second. Um, you'll be the role of the very smart doctor that you are, and I'll be the role of somebody that doesn't want to get the shot. Um, so, you know, 
um, we, we'll 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 start first by by me just me just telling you you know I don't I don't want to get the vaccination because it's not tested you know they came up with it really really fast it was like a year um, it's still not approved like why do I, like why am I even going to put you know something that's you know new and experimental into my body well well I certainly understand your concerns. But I'm just curious, what are your own goals? What, what matters to you? And, and what, when this is over, when the COVID pandemic's over, what do you want to have said about your own experience, your own role, and, and not only, you know, protecting yourself, but protecting your family and your community and your church? And so, so tell me what's important to you, because you have the right to make any decision you want. And I'll respect that. But I'm just curious, because for me to give you any advice, I really need to understand what your, you know, what, what are your priorities? Well, I mean, I, I want to spend time with my family, you know, and, and just, uh, but probably more importantly, I just want to live in a free world where, you know, I, I don't have to one be forced to have a shot, but even if there, if I was forced to have the shot, I would just want to know that it's, it's been, been tested that, that it's, it's safe for me. Yeah, well, certainly, well, I could reassure you that the authorization that has been given these vaccines have gone through a very rigorous process. We have administered these vaccines to hundreds of millions of people, and we know they're effective. But I think the technical explanation is not really where I want to focus. It is really about, you know, do you want to be disabled? Do you want to be alive? Do you want to know that you passed on an infection that you got to your grandmother or to your mom or to your dad or to your grandfather and they died of it, how would you feel if, if that happened during this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would feel pretty bad, but I mean, every, everybody dies, right? And, um, you know, the research I've done says that, you know, there's like a 99 whatever percent survivability rate. So why should I even be afraid of, of a virus that, you know, like has a high percentage of me actually living? Yeah, I would say, well, during previous parts of the pandemic, you know, that may have been more true for some people. During this phase with this new um, form of COVID-19, this Delta variant, we are seeing young people like you get very, very sick. Our hospitals are overwhelmed today with people like you, Will. And, and there's people like you that have spread the virus to other people in your family. We're seeing whole families of people die. We're also seeing people get disabled. We have a we have a young guy in our hospital today who was an MMA fighter, a champion, and he was on bedside cardiac bypass for six weeks. He's lost seventy pounds. He can't walk now. I mean, he says now I want to be vaccinated, but it's too late for him. And so, for me, for you, well, I don't want to see you make a decision that will have consequences that will be much different than you can imagine, because I'm a critical care doctor. I understand we all die, and, and that's part of our life, but we all want to live with the best quality of life during the time that we're alive, and we don't want to think that we have hurt somebody that we love or hurt anybody. And right now, unfortunately, if you decide not to be fully vaccinated, you become a potential vector. You become a potential source of infection to other people. And even if you survive an infection, you might kill somebody that you love. You may kill somebody that you know, and you may do it without even knowing that you have been infected. And you may not only die from this, you may become disabled. You may not be able to walk again. 10% to 11% of people that are healthy that get COVID-19 are not back to any normal activities eight months later. So it is not just dying, it's being disabled, and it's not being there for the people that you love, for your children, for your wife, for, you know, and you may not be able to do your job. You may not be able to earn an income. So there are many different parts of this, and it's easy to say when you feel healthy that, yeah, I don't want that, but I will just tell you, this is the cornerstone of a effective strategy 
that will keep you healthy almost certainly and will give you the ability to do what you want to do. But even more, Will, it will give you the comfort to know that you're protecting people that you love, not just protecting yourself. You know what, doctor? You make a pretty good case. Um, but my my last question... Um, you know, or you can take smart. ivermectin. I'm kidding. <laughs> from you smart people is is <laughs> things are changing right so like ever since the pandemic is like wear a mask don't wear a mask wear a mask don't wear a mask you know and or you know vaccines protect you nope you got to wear a mask and you know social distance and it seems like these things are always changing so you know how can i trust the science if the science seems like they don't really know what they're talking about well i, I very much you know um agree with what you say. It's, you know, there's a, there's a problem. You know, we've talked a lot in our country about bad actors are trying to disrupt things, you know, giving us misinformation. And, and then there's people that will grab onto a narrative to gain power, control, or money. That's to me, you know, disinformation. But I think the real problem is we have generated so much information, so many different points of view that it's really confusing. It's confusing for me. And I read about this every day. That's <laughs> it's my main job now to read about it. But also I would say, Will, just very simply, that I believe what I see when it comes to our own hospital system. And, and when you look around the world, we see that the absolute single intervention, and it's not just a prevention, it's a treatment that we have, are these vaccines. They're spectacular. I've been completely vaccinated myself. My 90-year-old, 91-year-old mother, fully vaccinated. My 27-year-old child age-bearing newly married daughter, fully vaccinated. Two sons, fully vaccinated. Wife, fully vaccinated. The people I love the most in the world are fully vaccinated. And if I didn't feel that was safe, I wouldn't have any of them vaccinated. I feel like that this is the thing that will protect you from having the problems that we just outlined from COVID-19. But ultimately, ultimately, this is still your decision. And I'll respect your decision. I'm a pulmonary lung physician. Many of my patients smoke cigarettes and had lung problems and keep kept smoking. But of course, I cared for them and cared about them the same as I would you, whatever you decide. But I would hate to see tragedy strike you or your family. And now is the time to prevent that strategy or that tragedy from striking you. And if you wait until it strikes you, it's too late. Even if you decide to be fully vaccinated, then it may be too late for you and it may be too late for the people that you have infected. So I really would encourage you to very much choose to do this. But again, your choice. Hmm. Well, you got yourself a, another patient. Can you administer the shot through the microphone? <laughs> we'll send somebody to vaccinate whoever we see vaccinated. We will, yeah. we will bring vaccine to anybody. And that is a that is awesome. Um, uh, so I, I've got I've got one one more question for you. Um, this is I'm back in my vaccinated body. Um, and uh, I I spoke with with a colleague of yours, Doctor Danny Avula from Virginia, the vaccination yeah, coordinator. I yeah, he's super awesome. And um, I, I asked him, you know, to, well, I asked him two questions. So I, maybe I'll, I've got two last questions. The, the okay. first one was, <laughs> was like, how would this all end um, in in the sense of, you know, um, we we have vaccinations, we have people that are vaccinated, we got people that are unvaccinated. Like, how how is this going to end? His his response basically was like, I I think we're gonna we're gonna be living with this for a while. Um, and when I asked him about herd immunity, he's like, like we need we like we need to be shooting for like the ninety percent mark, um, like globally, is what, is what he was saying. I'm like, oh great, like we're never going to get through this, are we? So I, I'm curious to get your point. Like, how 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 is this all going to end? You know, I, I think this is going to end when, you know, the virus is not going to get less fit. It's on us to get more fit. And I think we get more fit by more vaccinations, by more people who've been infected that maintain immunity. You know, if you look at COVID like a fire, and, and that seems like COVID the, you know, the competitor or COVID the evil thing. And I don't mean it that way, just as a metaphor. And let's just say, that in order to stop the fire, you have to have enough firewalls 
that stop the fire from extending. Eventually, the fire may go from being a raging single fire to a number of separate fires because you're able to stop the fire from, you know, either consuming, you've already gone through all the consumable wood in the forest, or you've created enough protective zones that the fire starts to separate itself. And I think that's the way we'll see COVID. It will go from the roaring fire to smaller fires. And then over time, a lot of those fires will go out, but maybe eventually, you know, you'll see a few stoke back up in certain areas. And, you know, I think over time, COVID will become endemic. Other coronaviruses, about four or five of them, are just common cold viruses. And as we gain immunity, COVID will likely become a common cold type virus too. But I think that's going to be out in the future and maybe out in the longer future. I think we'll be looking at getting shots, you know, vaccine boosters, et cetera, for COVID over some time. And, you know, I'm a bit concerned that the virus still might mutate away somewhat from what we've done so far. So we may need to have other more newer types of vaccines that we give, you know, like we do the flu every year to, 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 to match the specifics of that virus and, and, and do that. You know, when it comes to herd immunity, herd immunity is really a term that's been used in animal sort of infectious disease, generally with pathogens, with infections that don't really mutate. I mean, COVID is changing all the time. And so to think that we're going to get herd immunity, to me, is almost kind of laughable in a way. I mean, and I don't mean to make lesser of it, but but I think that right now, you know, we're just trying to survive with COVID right now. And then we'll try to, you know, to do more balance with COVID. But to thrive with COVID, I think that's going to take a, quite a while, like Danny said. And, and I don't think herd immunity is a real thing because people's immune function will start to degrade. We'll lose some potency. So even if you immunize everybody, there's going to be groups of people in different camps. But I think really what we have to do well and we haven't gotten there yet, but we do, is, you know, our whole life is about controlling stuff. I mean, if you think about it, let's just say our life, like we live our life on a boat and we're on this great river, but the river has some rapids on it. And we're going down and we're on the boat and we're paddling to try to move the boat back up the river in the other direction. And we're paddling like crazy. And maybe if we become the head of a company, we have a whole bunch of people that paddle with us like crazy. But then we get to the rapids part. And even if we can get upstream a little bit, the rapids are going to move us back in the direction the rapids are going to move us. So we've spent our whole life resisting what is unfolding in our lives, you know, and we don't want, you know, we think our life is about suffering and we think our life is about unhappiness and, you know, external powerful things that make things bad for us, whatever it is, victimhood, you know, et cetera. But the truth is that if we just let go and if we just enjoy the ride with the people we're on and not be so worried about resisting so much, but maybe more about accepting and trusting and getting in harmony with with the things going on around us, and COVID may be one of those, then we could turn this from something that seems so threatening to us, where we have such fracturing around belief systems and all this, and work together in faith and in trust and in more harmony and resonance. And then I think we could all do really well because there's so much wealth, there's so much opportunity, there's so much abundance that is possible for us. But I think that, you know, the only ones really limiting that are us. And once we change our mindset and, and don't see ourselves as others to overcome, but see ourselves as mirrors to each other, you know, the, the saying namaste really translates, as I understand it, to the divine in me bows to the divine in you, part of the same thing. And I think that's where this is all going to go. And I am really optimistic that all the stuff we see, the terrible weather events, the political politicalization, gender inequity, racial inequity, pa single pandemic of the lifetime are all part of this transformational change. 
And I think what it says is instead of trying to control everything, which of course we can't, no matter what, <laughs> maybe we just start to let go and then try to help each other. And if we can really be here to serve each other and to share with each other, then maybe that's the way that we get through not only COVID, we start to build a much better planet. So we really do thrive together because we've worked on the survival part and that's not been so much fun. <laughs> that is a, that's awesome. Um, and I, I, I can't thank you enough, Dr. Marsh, for just spending some time with us. Um, um, your words have been very impactful, very um, uplifting. Um, and, and I just want to thank you for just, just the great work you're doing. I, I know it's not an easy job, but you, you managed to, to be very optimistic and, uh, and high spirits. I, I kind of want to like extract some of that from the screen <laughs> and from the, micro, from the microphone. Cause I mean, these are, these can be dark times for a lot of people and people are hurting and people are having to make some really tough decisions and you seem like just the right person to to kind of help people navigate through all that so uh, i just want to thank you oh thank you well it's so nice great to be with you and i would just want to make sure that i'm also qualifying my heart hurts for everybody that's been negatively impacted by COVID 19 i never want to make light of other people's tragedies and there's never a gotcha and all oh, these people deserved anything. That's never, ever in our lexicon or conversation. But I do think that things happen for reasons and oftentimes ones we can't understand. And I have tremendous faith that this is part of our return home in some ways, and not just COVID, but everything. But we've constructed a world where we feel that there's an external savior to come in to rescue us. I think that's us. And I think that once we change on the inside, then everything will change on the outside. Everything has changed on the outside. So now I think our work to do is to change on the inside, to build a better version of ourselves, which then I think together can build a much better version of the world that we share. Wow. And with that, um, thank you again so much. And uh...